coming to you from the AT&T Podcast Studio, this is Long Story Short. I'm Sean Witt, the Audience Development Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide non-for-profit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Reporter Keaton Ross wrote about a pending lawsuit in federal court that seeks to bar former President Donald Trump from Oklahoma ballots in 2024. Keaton, who filed this lawsuit? It's John Castro. He's a Dallas-based tax advisor um, and a write-in candidate for the Republican presidential primaries. Uh, He also ran for uh, some local or state house races um, in Texas. Uh, So kind of a perennial candidate there that is uh, seeking to get Trump off the ballot. Um, Trump and Oklahoma's state election board secretary, Paul Zierix, are listed as the respondents in the lawsuit. On what grounds are they trying to bar Trump from running in Oklahoma? So they're they're arguing that Article 3 of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution uh, effectively bars someone uh, who has participated in an insurrection or sedition from running for public office. Of course, that's all up to argument and interpretation, but that's the argument presented in the lawsuit, um, which they say makes Trump ineligible to to run for the presidency. Have there been any key dates or deadlines been set so far? Not yet. It was filed last Wednesday, um, and usually it takes, takes a little bit of time for uh, all the respondents to see it and, and for, you know, kind of the dates to be set um, and for it to get moving. So no dates yet, but it is uh, in the U.S. District or the Western District Court, uh, federal court here in Oklahoma City. Has Castro filed similar lawsuits in other states? Yeah, they're they're filing these lawsuits in several states that that Trump won or narrowly lost in 2024, um, like Kansas, Arizona, New Hampshire. Um, I guess as a strategy to try to try to chip away at, at Trump's viability uh, coming up here in 2024. Um, I guess it is important to note that uh, he's not licensed to practice practice law in Texas. There have been questions about his, uh, I guess, suitability as as a as an attorney and a litigator. Um, but he has filed several of these lawsuits in, in different states across the country. Interesting. So what makes this argument under the 14th Amendment so unique? So it's interesting. It, it was ratified uh, during the Reconstruction period, uh, immediately after the Civil War, uh, with the goal of preventing anyone who was a Confederacy official from running for office and, and coming into power into the, the United States. Um, and it's been pretty sparsely uh, looked at, argued since then. Uh, so, you know, it's been, been relatively dormant for, you know, the past 150 years or so. Uh, do any legal experts have anything to say about the merits of this lawsuit? Uh, yeah, there are questions about just the general scope of, of this argument, um, questions about, well, does it apply to the, the presidency? Of course, there are, there are special powers and privileges of the presidency. Um, there are also questions that, um, of course, Trump has been, been charged with his role, uh, on with January 6th, but he hasn't been convicted of any crime yet. So there's questions of, um, you know, can you can you utilize this act with someone who who hasn't been convicted of anything yet? Um, so it seems the general consensus seems like it's it's 
relatively unlikely um, that this will keep Trump off the ballot, but there are it is being considered in several states. So it's definitely something to to continue watching. So with that being said, have there been any other public officials or candidates removed from office under this provision of the 14th Amendment? So there was actually a uh, county commissioner in New Mexico um, who was convicted of going into the Capitol trespassing on January 6th. Uh, and the state removed them from their position under this portion of the of the Constitution. Uh, so a pretty isolated case, um, been relatively rarely utilized, but it has it was utilized in this case uh, with that that county commissioner who who participated in January 6th. So several polls have been surveyed uh, for Oklahoma Republicans ahead of the presidential primaries in March. Where does Trump stand in those polls? Uh, he's, he's polling pretty well here in Oklahoma. Uh, there was an Amber integrated poll from, from last month in August that had him at around 50%. Um, so definitely the leading candidate, uh, Florida governor Ron DeSantis, uh, is trailing right behind him. Um, something interesting that, that should play out over the next several months before the March primary is, uh, governor Kevin Stitt has endorsed Ron DeSantis, um, is polling for him. There are some members of the legislature that have signed on for uh, supporting him. So uh, we'll, we'll be interesting to see how that race plays out over the next several months. Thanks, Keaton. You can read all of Keaton's coverage on our website, oklahomawatch.org. While you're there, be sure to sign up for his free weekly newsletter, Democracy Watch. I'm here with Jennifer Palmer, who covers education for Oklahoma Watch. She's been following the State Education Department's new partnership with PragerU. That announcement sparked outrage amongst parents and educators last week, with many saying the content has no place in schools. Jennifer, first off, what is PragerU? It's short for Prager University Foundation. However, it is not a university or a foundation. Um, the best way to describe it is a conservative media company, um, and they've kind of uh, pitched it as an antidote to the left-wing or um, liberal indoctrination in the classroom, right? What can you tell us about these videos? What has parents and educators so objectionable to them? Right. So these are short animated videos um, that they put on their website and on YouTube. Um, they mostly... Um, cover famous historical figures or social issues. And a lot of the outrage is over, um, you know, misinformation in these videos, um, historical inaccuracies, and um, some of them downplay, you know, climate change or um, the horrors of slavery. Um, in one such video, uh, there's an animated Christopher Columbus who describes uh, you know, basically is justifying slavery and says, you know, being taken as a slave is better than being killed, right? Um, and says, you know, I don't see the problem. Yeah. So with all that being said, State Superintendent Ryan Walters has endorsed this content. Is that correct? That's right. These are now linked on the State Department of Education's website, which, you know, gives it um, obviously some credibility. Um and he, you know, made the announcement. He appeared in a video on PragerU's website as well. Um, he said he was excited to 
Um, quote, help ensure high quality materials rich in American history and values are available to teachers and students. So Walters claims this is high quality material. Has it been vetted by teachers or curriculum experts? Um, that was a big question I had. I don't know if internally, you know, maybe some curriculum experts reviewed these videos, but I do know that it did not go through the typical process that the state has set up to review materials, which is the state textbook committee that's in state law. You know, that involves a lot of teachers um, and curriculum experts that look over um, materials for, you know, whether they are high quality and whether they meet state standards. How much is Oklahoma paying for this partnership? Well, it's free. There's no contract, according to the State Department of Education, and there's no cost. Well, someone's paying for it. Who funds PragerU? That's a great question and something I um, definitely have been looking into. Their annual reports and their most recent 990s don't list any of their donors, um, but they do list uh, the amount of revenue that they collected in 2022, and that was uh, over $65 million. Um, They actually spent $16 million of that on advertisements on Facebook and Google, and they also spent a little over a million on Fox. The organization's founder, Dennis Prager, is not shy about his mission. What does he have to say about this? Right. He spoke at the uh, Moms of Liberty conference recently and, um, you know, was not shy about what they're trying to do. I mean, they're trying to change minds. Uh, they're trying to, um, you know, promote like pro-American values. And, you know, he responded to criticism that they're indoctrinating students. And he said, basically, yeah, we are bringing doctrines to children and, um, you know, we don't see anything wrong with it. <laughs> Wow. Thanks, Jennifer. You can read all of Jennifer's education coverage on our website, oklahomawatch.org. While you're there, be sure to sign up for her free weekly newsletter, Education Watch. Last week, Ted Struley, Executive Director of Oklahoma Watch, sat down with Whitney Bryan, who covers vulnerable populations. Reporter Whitney Bryan covers vulnerable populations for Oklahoma Watch. Much of her reporting this year is focused on why Oklahomans with mental health conditions end up in jail instead of treatment and the lethal consequences that can occur with incarceration. Whitney, you recently reported on a woman named Kelly Wright who died after being incarcerated at the Pottawatomie County Jail. Tell us what happened to her. Sure. Well, Kelly Wright was in Shawnee at a casino and hotel there for an accounting conference. She had she was fairly healthy. She did have a, a history of delirium. So she had some mental health conditions that she had dealt with in the past, but had been otherwise healthy. And then at some point this weekend uh, in 2021, she had some type of mental health episode. We got some video footage from police body cameras that showed her screaming and, and yelling that she had been talking to God, that she thought she was going to die. Um, police thought she was on drugs. They kept asking her what she had taken, and she never responded to that. 
Um, according to the video, you know, they assumed that she had taken meth. Um, she was, you know, resisting their questions and they eventually uh, handcuffed her and took her to a patrol vehicle where, again, she was resisting them. Um, you know, she kicked an officer at one point who was forcing her into the back of the vehicle. And then the police ended up taking her to the Pottawatomie County Jail. We know very little about what happened to her inside the jail, but she was placed into a cell by herself before the video ended. And then the following day, she died at a nearby hospital. She was covered in bruises and had several broken bones. Now, this kind of story, sadly, uh, is feeling pretty familiar. You've written about several other Oklahomans who have been in uh, comparable situations. Remind us about a few of those. That's right. So actually, at the same jail, a man named Ronald Given was uh, beaten to death by jailers back in 2019. We've written about him in the past, and he was also arrested during a mental health crisis. Now, in Ronald's case, he was taken by police to a hospital where he was assessed and it was determined he needed mental health treatment. So he waited for a bed to open up, become available for that treatment at the hospital. And while he was waiting for that bed to open up, he, uh, you know, had another episode where he started hallucinating. He uh, pushed a police officer in the shoulder, according to police reports, and they arrested him and took him to the jail where, as I said, he was he was beaten by jailers and died um, in his case. Now, there have been situations like this in other jails around Oklahoma, too. Uh, more recently, Shannon Hanchett, she was arrested during a mental health crisis at an AT&T store in Norman. That was back in December. And she died about 12 days later inside the Cleveland County Jail. She also, uh, similar to Kelly Wright, she was not taken for mental health treatment when police arrested her. She was taken straight to the jail. And there are still a lot of questions about what happened to Kelly inside that facility. Now, why are people like Kelly and Shannon and Ronald ending up in jail instead of a hospital or a treatment center of some kind? Well, as I mentioned, in all three of these situations and in most of the cases that we write and, and report about, um, police are the ones responding to these people who are experiencing a mental health crisis. So in the cases of Kelly and Shannon and Ronald, um, you know, those those folks were experiencing uh, mental health episodes. They were not necessarily breaking the law when pre police arrived. Now, at some point during their interactions with police, um, you know, police found a, a reason to arrest them, some sort of criminality. But these folks are, you know, being responded to by 911, by police officers who are not trained mental health professionals. So they tell me, the police tell me that their options are pretty limited when these types of things happen. You know, if someone is breaking the law, for instance, uh, you know, Ronald Given and uh, Kelly Wright, they were both kind of creating a stir, so to speak, in, in businesses. And those businesses wanted them to leave. You know, they were trespassing, essentially. So the options that police have are to take that person you know, against their will, if they are a danger to themselves or others, 
either to a jail or to a mental health hospital or, you know, even an emergency room. So uh, police basically are saying we can't do much when we are called, but they have to answer these calls. Now, this has been going on in Oklahoma for a long time, but last year, the federal government launched an investigation into the state's response to people in crisis, right? That's right. So in November, the Department of Justice launched that investigation, and they're basically trying to determine whether Oklahomans like Kelly, like Shannon, like Ronald, are ending up in jails because the state is not providing sufficient mental health treatment in those communities. So in a lot of these cases, folks who end up with mental health crises in jails, they're, you know, disproportionately poor. They often are reliant on welfare and other state services like mental health treatment. Uh, Many, you know, don't have health insurance or can't afford care even if they do have health insurance. So they don't receive the treatment that they need and then they degrade, their conditions worsen. And that's often how folks like Kelly, Shannon, Ronald end up Um, in these interactions with police officers and ultimately in jail. So we'll see what the Department of Justice finds. What happens when they get to the jail? Do they get any kind of uh, mental health care once they're inside? Well, that depends on the jail. Um, Some jails do have mental health providers that they contract with or in some cases who are even inside the jail for a certain number of hours each week. Um, However, the majority of people are not getting the care that they need. So they might be, you know, doing a telehealth visit with a local mental health provider, but it can take, you know, weeks or months to get things like a court order to transfer someone from a jail to a mental health hospital. You know, these things take time. So while in some cases there are people trying to provide some sort of treatment in the jail, uh, these folks are not getting the treatment that they need. Have you talked to the jails? What do they say? Absolutely. So in most counties, the sheriff's department runs the jails, and uh, there are many sheriffs around the state, including the Tulsa County Sheriff, who uh, speak out frequently about this. They call, you know, their jails de facto mental health hospitals because so many of the people detained inside these jails suffer from mental health conditions of some sort. And uh, again, the Tulsa County Sheriff, Vic Rigolato, he has, in fact, recently uh, refused to start a contract with the state's Department of Mental Health to provide more treatment to folks inside of his jail because the department is wanting to treat people who have been found incompetent to stand trial by the courts leaving them inside the jail while they're receiving treatment that the courts have ordered. Uh, The sheriff there is saying, no, we are not equipped to house these folks. This is not the place for them to get care. Uh, They need to be in a mental health hospital while the state's Department of Mental Health is arguing we don't have enough beds for them. They need to go somewhere. So this is a a frequent debate that's been happening in Oklahoma. So what's being done to address any of that? 
Well, um, in fact, while there is an issue with providing treatment to these folks who have been found incompetent, this is, as the Department of Mental Health says, one of the potential options to get treatment to these folks faster. So a lot of the options being provided for, you know, fixing these issues have their own uh, hiccups, challenges. Uh, there's a lot of debate around those issues. So, um, that's just one of the options that's come up. You know, others are things like CIT training, that's crisis intervention training that's being provided to police officers. Those are usually the first folks on site when someone is having a, you know, mental health crisis in public. 911 gets called. So these officers can take voluntary training to learn how to identify a mental health crisis and how to better respond. They teach them about, you know, what it would require for police officers to detain someone like that against their will if they have not broken the law. We have a law that allows um, police officers to detain someone who is found to be a danger to themselves or others in order to take them to a hospital. So there is a lot of work happening around that. But again, a lot of pushback in situations like that from folks who say, no, police officers should not be involved at all. Jails should not be involved at all. Well, didn't uh, Oklahoma City a couple of years ago start a champions program where there was a a mental health team that was available to uh, respond along with police in those situations. What's happened with that? That's right. Oklahoma City does have this co-responder model is what it's called in this space, as does Tulsa. They have a similar model um, where they're teaming counselors with uh, police and first responders and some other communities are trying similar things as well. Um, you know, the police departments I've spoken to in those communities are saying um, we've had some progress. The but that I keep hearing is there are just not enough of these teams. You're talking about, you know, in, in the case of Oklahoma City, at least 20,000 of these calls every year that potentially require a mental health counselor to be there available with the police officer. And right now they have one counselor working with one police officer, you know, 40 hours a week. And so there's no way they can handle all of these calls those types of programs, you know, require funding and training and people who are, are willing to take those positions. And in addition to that, you know, again, you have a lot of folks in the community saying police should still not be a part of this. They want police completely out of these responses when criminality or violence is not an issue. And there are models for this around the country, right? That out of the the country's 20 largest cities by population, the majority of them now have uh, some kind of uh, non-police response for these situations. I know the STAR program in Denver, for example, has been very successful. And uh, Eugene, Oregon has a program called CAHOOTS that uh, has been doing this for more than 30 years, that they respond to all those situations without uh, police in tow, and uh, it's freed up police to pursue uh, criminal activity and, and public safety while uh, those that need treatment are uh, seen by people who are maybe better equipped to handle those situations. Uh, from your reporting, have you seen any any movement in Oklahoma uh, toward more aggressively pursuing those models? 
You're absolutely right, Ted. Those models that you just mentioned are seen as sort of the pinnacle of, you know, what is working in some cases in cities around the country. And in fact, in Oklahoma, I have heard about both of those models from police departments and mental health providers who are looking at these solutions. Um, however, Oklahoma has been really slow to fund and push and really put a lot of money and energy into producing programs like this. Uh, you know, we talked about the Oklahoma City program. Um, it currently has, you know, basically one co-responder team doing this kind of work, which is certainly insufficient. And, and the city uh, police department would tell you that as well for the need. Um, same in Tulsa. You know, we've written about some cases there of, um, you know, mental health calls gone wrong where somebody was, you know, injured or, or died because, police responded to a mental health call. Um, and in a lot of those cases, it's because their co-responders were too busy. So we have not seen a big push to create a program like the Denver Star Program or CAHOOTS here in Oklahoma. All right. Well, thanks, Whitney. You can read uh, all of Whitney's coverage of the deaths in the county jails, uh, particularly centered around the uh, recent revelations at the Pottawatomie County Jail. You'll find that story on our website, oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we are grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Sean Witt. Thanks for listening.